Welcome one and all to a new episode of my RPG podcast. Today's episode, our good friend Michael Gibson returns to talk about what it is that makes a modern GM. This kind of uh, unique episode is less about the guest and more about kind of the topic and me and Mike get a great opportunity to have some back and forth about our thoughts about the current state of being a game master in the TTRPG sphere. Enjoy. <laughs> Welcome one and all to a new episode of My RPG Podcast. Today's episode has a theme here. It's about being the modern GM, and I've brought along my great guest, Michael Gibson. Michael, would you please introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first of all, I'm really happy to be back here for a second time. Uh, for those who didn't catch me on the previous episode, uh, I was here. Uh, my name is Michael J. Gibson. Um, I'm a professional game master and uh, tabletop RPG designer. Um, I also have a background in uh, uh, marketing in both the entertainment and technology sectors. Um, I am a proud Chicagoan and uh, actually am a disability uh, advocacy uh, activist as well. I'm currently going through some chemotherapy for a second round of cancer and I'm really sort of jazzed to still be a part of the community right now. And when I was thinking about the modern GM and having a conversation about what the modern GM is, they are many things, but I think Michael hits a lot of the positives of what they are. He was kind of the first person that came to mind for me because of, like he mentioned, his background in game design, professionally running games, and also just being so aware of what's happening now in the current TTRPG space. So today's episode is going to be a lot of uh, me kind of creating a generalized statement or kind of asking an open-ended question and us kind of going back and forth because the onus of this episode, the origin of this episode uh, for the, the listeners is I was finishing up a game, one of my uh, three sessions that I run, one of my three campaigns that I run, and a great, uh, really awesome Kickstarter apparently had been launched for some like 3D modeling for like in-world dungeon world building creation stuff. So we, where you can like really go in depth to obviously have the giant macro view of like the, you know, the hills and the tundras, or then you can zoom in and on a specific town where you have buildings with dynamic lighting and, you know, it's like creating your own video game, you know, RPG workspace. And my players were like, oh, isn't this so brilliant? Wouldn't you love to now add this to your world stuff? And, you know, I kind of jokingly kind of laughed and said, oh, great, you know, more more hours of prep every week. And one of my other players who happens to be a GM longer than, far longer than I have, uh, he's actually been playing over 20 plus years, goes, ah, yes, the blight of the modern GM. You must be apparently a Shakespearean actor who knows accents. You must be a writer when it comes to world building. And now you must be a game designer, animator slash environmental, you know, artist creator and we all kind of had a nice turtle and, and and we went on with the session but it did kind of sting a little bit and trigger something in my mind about what the face of playing ttrpgs in the 21st century especially now in this very very um necessary uh, online space because of social distancing and covid so i was like 
Well, yeah, why don't we have a look at what it is to be a modern GM and what the expectations are and what the realities are too. Because I think um, one of the things I'm almost certain we're going to talk about a lot is, uh, of course, every game is very much different. But now that we live in a world with access to so many resources, is there an excuse not to be some of these things or access some of these resources. So with that kind of big idea in mind, I'll start with kind of a simple statement, which I'm sure will be controversial. And that's kind of the point of it being so general and blank. It's a modern GM should have a list of accents and or acting ability. What do you think, Michael? Um, so I think to a certain extent, some sort of acting ability is a necessity. I don't think somebody has to have a background in it, but I think they definitely have to be comfortable with performance because, you know, when, when you have a player, they're taking on one individual role. Um, and if you have, you know, a player at your table who isn't super comfortable with RP, um, the rest of the scenario and the environment can make up for it. When, even the GM or the storyteller is separate from that and everything is delivered in the same cadence or everything is delivered with the same level of emphasis. Um, it can become really hard to differentiate characters, but on top of that, I think it can also be really hard for the players to understand, you know, how they're supposed to feel in that moment. I think the tone and delivery of exposition is just as important as the content because it helps you set a mood. It helps you create a sense of immersion to, to, you know, lean forward in my case right now, lean forward to the camera. Um, but you know, at, at a table, lean forward across the table and like draw people in and start at a whisper. You know, you see the big bad evil guy, you know, sitting alone in his throne and he turns to face you. Uh, and, and in that moment, you lock eyes and you understand his plan. Like, you know, creating moments like that as a part of comes from the delivery. And I think to not have comfort as a performer, um, I think is really going to hamstring an emerging game master. And I think there's a great point that you made about creating a difference. So I found in a lot of gaming, it, it's almost Pavlovian to a sense. When you have the cadence or when you have, and it doesn't even have to be an accent. It can just be when your words start to come in a certain way or you change your posture when your players see that and they've seen you do that, say, multiple times, they recognize, oh, it's game time, right? He's not talking out of character because sometimes this will happen. There are players who don't feel very comfortable using a different voice or something like that. So what happens is a lot of times they'll say something and you don't know if they're riffing as a joke or you don't know if they're saying that in character. And as a GM, you might, you know, check them to be like, wait, did you just out loud say, like, I don't trust this guy and he's smelly? Like, you know, because obviously you as a GM need to react to that if they just said that in front of the guard who's denying them entrance into the castle or whatever they're trying to do. Sure, sure. However... Once you kind of signal to them that like, hey, now's the time for me to be a character or because of my voice inflection, because of my posture, because of just how all of a sudden I'm long pregnant pauses where I just look intently at you all like, oh, it's game time. Um, that's so important. And that doesn't require technically acting or accent work. That's something we all have access to. And one of my favorite writers and comedians and figures ever, Stephen Fry, he wrote a fantastic book about poetry. And the reason he talked to, uh, about poetry and the reason the book was so accessible to everybody, he said, is because while we might not all be fantastic athletes or super comfortable in front of crowds doing speeches and things like that, we all have some form of language, be it sign language, you know, verbal, written, whatever that is that we have access to. And just by being conscientious of the words we use or how we manipulate language, 
we can create whatever we want. And that's a tool we all have access to. So even if you're somebody who's not comfortable putting on a voice or pretending to be an opposite gender or, not, or opposite species or whatever it is, you don't have that comfort, that's fine. But we all have language. So when you type out the adventure, if you start changing maybe formatic typing that all jumbles together and has bad grammar, oh, maybe there's something off about this character. Or maybe there's something intense about them as opposed to taking your time and just breaking your words up and having your words be short, simple to the point. That's a completely different character. And none of that took an accent. None of that took quote unquote acting because you all heard me, but you didn't see me, but you got the point, right? Yeah, exactly. And and it's, I, I think it's just, it's a part of creating that immersion and those characters and helping signal to the player, this is something different. This is something to take note of. Definitely. And I, and I think we, we both agree though, that as a GM, there are obviously a world of people who open up a module, open up a book and go, okay, you go left or right. All right, you go left, then this thing happens. You go right, then this thing happens. And that's you know totally fine. And that's the game you like to run, absolutely. But I think as an asset, as a, a, something to create, really create that verisimilitude, that believability, uh, I think, yeah, a little bit of acting, a little bit of theater, or just a little bit of differentiation goes a long way. Mm-hmm. And and I, I do want to point out for folks, you can learn that like it, it is not something that is necessarily inherent. Like I know everybody loves to throw around like the, the term, you know, oh, talented. But I mean, you can go on YouTube and there are voice coaches who will help you with specific dialects. Like I've I've done a few YouTube series with some dialect coaches that have really helped me differentiate some of my character voices. Um, but, you know, even if you're not ready to do that. There are improv tools you can use where it's just like a 30 second or 45 second clip and it'll guide you through a start and you do it yourself and you don't have to worry about an audience and you can just get comfortable with it and then bring it to a table. Yeah, absolutely. There's many options. And I think that's something that all GMs should have access to um, if they have, you know, internet or even if they just have other GMs, we can all, I mean, once knock on wood, once we all are able to see each other again, be it at conventions or our local friendly neighborhood game shops or whatever it is we do, um, I've always thought the TTRPG community to be so inclusive and so willing to help. And every time I've been to a convention, somebody's willing to give you advice and help, kind of like what we're doing right now in person. So you can find resources wherever you're at. So the second one I have here uh, to drive the conversation is the modern GM should know all the rules. <laughs> yeah, I know that one was a hundred percent going to get that sort of response, but Hey, that's the point of these types of questions. I mean, absolutely not. Uh, that's there's, first of all, like that is impossible. There, like there's always new modifications and new content coming out. And then you get into, you know, the question of, okay, well, what if you're playing with homebrew content? What if you're playing with unearthed arcana content? And that's just, if you're playing dungeons and dragons, on top of that, what if you're playing, you know, uh, a different game? You know, there are some games that use room draws. There are some games that are, you know, that you don't use resolution mechanics. Like, it is, no, I, it is absolutely impossible for any GM to know all the rules. Um, I think it's, I think it's possible. I think there are definitely some GMs out there that do. Now, now that I think about it, I don't think it's a necessity. 
I think especially right now with so many games being digital, you're able to just control F your way through any question if you do want to see what rules as written are. But I mean, kind of most of the fun of having a tabletop game and having a GM and having players is it's kind of up to you whether or not you even need to know all the rules verbatim because Mm -hmm sometimes they're going to get in the way of a really cool character moment and you just want to be able to, you know, let it happen the way it's going to happen without sitting there and going, well, I don't know. Um, In my opinion, and I know that there are some people who really, really like to play rules as written. That's just not the way I play. And that's not the way any of my clients like to play. Um, So for me, I think it's a hard disagree. I don't, I don't think we need to know all the rules off the top of our head. And, you know, that's 100% a leading sort of statement for conversations. And you, I, I think you nailed, hit it on the nail on the head when you mentioned the fact that, like, we live in an age to where we can control F or Google search or, you know, DuckDuckGo or whatever your preferred method is. So many solutions that the rules are, it's not that they're irrelevant. I think that we should just have an understanding of the intent. As a GM, I think probably more important than your understanding of the rules is the intent. And what's the intent? What do you do? think the uh, spell should do or what do you think the mechanic should work like because that's where and this has happened to me multiple times i mean countless amount of times to where uh, a player has said like i cast a spell or i initiate this effect i have and i don't know your class in and out like you do or i don't know the spell book in and out like you do so i sometimes just go yeah yeah what's that supposed to do what what does that mean and then i'll kind of listen back to it and then if i go "Mm, i actually think I, I don't like how that sounds, or I, I think that would work better this way. And fortunately, I have players who've been playing with me long enough that they understand, like, okay, cool, if your intention is this, or you feel like it's intended to go this way, I get that. So I think very much the rules are a, a suggestion, but ultimately you will understand the intent. You and your players understand the intent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think, you know, for some things like, hey, does that affect, you know, three people or four people like those kinds of questions, I think, can be easily referred to. But, you know, when when you start debating like. Specific verbiage and interpretations and you have to start diagramming sentences to interpret the rules, maybe just make a call that's fun as opposed to trying to figure out what the intent was. Well, and and what I meant by intent is like I'm not trying to read the developer or creator's intent. I'm trying to say what my intent is. Like if your character wanted ah. to – yeah, so let me let me take a few steps back. So if my character comes to me and goes, hey, look, uh, this thing's called a water whip and technically it's just an attack. But can I wrap a whip around and you know do this – like throw somebody this way? And I'm like, OK, well, I know technically like <sighs> – all right, so maybe you can only pull them five feet, but you said you don't want to do damage. So yeah, I'll allow it. Instead of doing damage, you wrap their entire body up and then you you know spin them around your head. Like, like things like that to where you I know what they are trying to do. I know what the intent of the character is. I want to do a cool thing or I want to do an interesting thing. And if the rule mm-hmm. itself says, oh, you can't really do it that way, that's where I go mm, mo- most of the time. I go, mm, I, th- I think I'll allow it. Because that's yeah. the type of you know game I like to sit at the table for. Like you mentioned, when it's three or four, if somebody says like, okay, I, I shoot them with a thing, I go, what's the range? Oh, you're off by 10 feet. Those are things where I think I'll refer to the rules more often because that has an inherent balance to it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and I I'm, I sort of interpret it the same way. 
Yeah, I mean that one's super straightforward. So I'll I'll, I'll move on to the next one, and, and this one I, I think you know we all know actually thanks to the fact that we all have been playing online a ton. Uh, it's the GM should be able to draw out on a map the battlefield so everybody can understand what's happening. And uh, this one's not as controversial as the last one because it's a little more nuanced. Uh, I agree that you should be able to make it clear that everybody knows what they're doing, but you don't necessarily have to use maps. I think even in the digital age, while we do have access to, you know, Roll20 and Dungeon World and uh, uh, virtual tabletops and things like that, I still like a lot of the theater of the mind because once you start going into, uh, okay, well, it's this giant expansive thing. Now you have to take an additional layer of like, all right, do I have those assets? Do I need to buy those assets? Do I create the terrain? Do I have the, you know, shading and the elevation covered and checked for? And then your players, and maybe this is just me, but sometimes there is such thing as too much information to your players. I don't, I don't know if you, you'll disagree with here, Michael, but I kind of like the fact that we live in a wibbly wobbly sort of space, so I can be like, oh, they're close enough to do this thing, or oh, there's this thing there. Whereas when you give them a definitive map or a definitive layout. Then they can start, you know, uh, being very pedantic, and that's where I'm like, all right, that's the that's kind of going against what I wanted. Yeah, I for I I honestly don't really have much of a preference. I like using battle maps, um, so I I commission a lot of battle maps from artists, and I'm a member of a lot of different patreons for map ma- uh, for map makers. Um, I like them because they, again, sort of help build the world a little bit by helping create the aesthetic of the moment and, and sort of help signal to players, you know, this is what this feels like. You know, there's a purple mist hanging over the battlefield, and now you can sort of see how that affects visibility and things like that. I think the problem, for my tables at least, um, while... Almost universally, all of my players prefer battle maps um, for tactical reasons. Um, There are a couple that get too tied up in every little detail on the map. And it's like, well, what's what's in that barrel? What's in that crate? What's in that desk? And it's just like, nothing. It's just set dressing. Could you please ignore it and focus on the hobgoblin who's about to eat your friend's face for like five seconds? there's a little bit of, and since it's, you know, a video game thing, it's kind of funny. There's a little bit of that, you know, open world RPG, like, oh, well, if this thing is presented to me, I want to learn, you know, open every door, unlock every, you know, treasure chest. I want to like look at all of the stuff there. And that it's very funny because when we are at the table or we're doing a theater of the mind sort of situation, we only kind of tell them what's relevant, right? We go, yeah, you know, you're in in an alleyway. There's three people behind you. You know, they're very tight together because the alleyway is only about, you know, 12 feet wide. So as they try to attack you, like maybe there's like some trash cans, whatever. They don't see the fact that we haven't really built the, the skyscraper nearby. We haven't really built, you know, if there's a fire et- escape and then, you know, old, old abuela at the window looking down at you all. Like that's something that's not relevant to the story. But when you put it on a map or you, you put assets on a map, then everything kind of becomes fair play, at least in their minds. Right. Yeah. And I honestly, I think a lot of that stems from poor GM behavior in the generations that came before us. Like, how, how many times have you seen, like, GMs that have been playing since the 70s 
who talk about how, you know, I ran a game and they could have found the one weapon that could kill Strahd or this vampire lord. And uh, they just didn't look in all the boxes in this room. And so they didn't find it. And haha, I killed them. You know, I, I think for a little while, tabletop RPGs, at least, again, speaking specifically to the TSR and D&D space, um, I think it was it was much more adversarial than it is now, which has led to player conditioning of expecting there to always be something hidden somewhere that if they don't ask exactly the right question, they're going to miss out on something. And I think it's our responsibility as the storytellers to help communicate to them that no, if there is something of note in the environment, I'm going to do what I can to give you a legitimate opportunity to find it. Um, To me, that's just better storytelling overall. And, Frankly, it also just makes you like a less adversarial, less adversarial person at the table. The 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 villain in the game should not be the GM. It should be their character. That's actually f- tying into another question. So I, I guess I'll, I'll bring that other question in. And that's the uh, the modern GM is always on the side of the players. Um, and, I, I, you know, I, I guess I'll tie that in by saying I think you're right where a lot of people I talked to who had played this game way before I got into it did have this, you know, it was, you know, save or suck sort of situation to where the rules were a lot more like, all right, well, you missed the the mark, your character's immediately dead. So you you had this drastic sort of life and death balance. So you were always on edge. And it always felt like the GM was against you, partially because a lot of those adventures and uh, modules were written to be that. There's a lot of situations to where like, I've tried to incorporate some of the old adventures into newer editions of like Dungeons and Dragons and, and things like that. And I go, I would never do this because some of this stuff just doesn't even make sense. It's just like you get lucky or you don't or it just happens, you know, random chance that you just had your head chopped off. You're like, ah, that takes a lot, a lot of agency away from them. So, you know, I, I'm with you with, with that uh, understanding there. But I, I'm a little bit cautious because I think I like that bit of danger and that uncertainty, that mystery. I think that's an asset that all GMs need to have, which is why so many GMs when I talk to get this like – almost malicious glee whenever talking about like, oh, sometimes I just roll dice and I don't tell my players what it's about. And then they get all scared. And we all kind of, you know, snicker amongst ourselves. And I'm like, yeah. Or like sometimes I'll be like, oh, so that's what you do. Are you certain that's what you do? And then they get nervous and they go, wait, wait, what, what should I, should I, should I done something else? Like, I think we, I think we all have to use that as an asset. I think there has to be just a little bit of like, are we potentially trying to screw you over? Who knows? Yeah, creating a creating an air of mystery, or you know, I don't think to 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 drop sort of a a literary studies term. I think the GM always needs to be an unreliable narrator, in that the the players always need to understand that because you're telling so many sides of the story that you a can't be completely objective, and b um, not everything is going to get revealed at once. Like you're not there to be a font of exposition and description, but you're also there to create these characters and interactions. Um, so, so to that extent, yeah, I, I think we need to, you know, sort of play a little coy sometimes, but I think there's a difference between, you know, making sure the players understand you're an unreliable narrator and being the kind of GM that just fills a dungeon with like every conceivable trap under the sun. Cause your goal is to kill your players as quick as possible. 
I think there's there's a level of maliciousness of intent that uh, that some of the old school players tend to enjoy. And and you know what? Maybe the players that they are with some of maybe that's the kind of game that some players want. That's just not the kind of game that I tend to run. But I will say that does feel like tying it into our overall topic. That's the shift that's happened in the modern TTRPG sphere. Like there's been a great push recently into inclusivity of not just races and sexes and identities and, you know, disabilities. Like all we've been, it feels like we've been doing now is making this amazing push to say all these sort of exclusive, like, no, 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 this is a boys game, usually, you know, waspy, white Anglo-Saxon, you know, suburban sort of thing. No, no, this can be for anyone, anywhere, regardless of what they like. I think that's the kind of modern GM, though. If, maybe this is just my Twitter sphere and I'm oblivious to all the other people who are like, no, 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 keep the old ways, you know, pure or whatever. But every convention I've gone to, every time I've been online or watched a stream or something like that, just about everyone is pushing for that sort of inclusivity, that sort of player focused, you know, story. And we're going to, one of my other topics is story focused sort of approach to RPGs now, as opposed to this old kind of art, you know, not, I won't say archaic because that belies like, like it's negative, just kind of an older, more antagonistic or more competitive version of this game. I, I do want to call out one thing on that note, like to, I agree with you on some fronts and I disagree on others. So on the one hand, I think I think there are a ton of people, you know, myself included and, and a lot of the greater TTRPG space, at least in in my network as well, who really push for inclusivity and accessibility across every demographic. On the flips, and I and I would agree with you that at a lot of conventions, I see a lot of welcoming faces and, and a lot of invitations to play games with a lot of different people. On the flip side of that, both you and I are generally white presenting dudes, and this has generally been our space or our demographic space for a really long time. I think it's easier for us to get invited in by diverse players and creators than it is for those diverse players and creators to get invited in by some of the folks who look like us. Um, and so while I think it's great that our networks respectively are really welcoming and encouraging, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've seen on social as well, there is still no shortage of abuse and, and sort of vile behavior not even just by people hiding behind anonymous, you know, accounts on Twitter, but people who professionally take a lot of positions in saying, you know, no, we don't need, you know, to include, you know, any flexibility on race or we don't need to examine some of these uh, ethics and morality structures through a critical lens because it's just the way it is, TM. Um I, I think we are getting a little further away from it. And the more dudes that look like us help push back against that, I think the easier it's going to be for marginalized creators to take up some of the space in the field and help continue to push that forward. And I appreciate you calling me out on that because that's a thing I, uh, I think does happen a little bit to 
like you said, us white forward facing people to where we're, we're like, oh, well, everyone I see is very positive and very receptive and open to all the, all the stuff because our reality is very much different than some of the marginalized uh, groups that are part of our community, unfortunately. And again, these people are so welcoming. I've had the opportunity to have a multitude of races and belief systems and people with different gender identities play with me. But then again, it's very easy for me to get to a table because I look like the vast majority of tables, right? It's changing, but I do look like that. And um, so I, I thank you for bringing that up. I, though I do feel, uh, since we're talking about kind of kind of what our perspective is and, and what we can do, I, I did bring this up. I don't know if we talked about this in our podcast. I know I've brought this up multiple times to any of my listeners who've listened to multiple podcasts, one of the kind of controversial things I'm willing to admit is I do sort of, how do I say it better than, uh, better than this? When deciding to bring people into my table, like if let's say we lose a player or if we've, you know, uh, started to take on somebody new into our campaign and things like that, I do favor somebody who's, well, obviously never played the game over somebody who has, but more importantly, I do favor people who bring diversity to my table. Um, one of my players, ironically enough, in my longest game, I had turned down like three times because somebody who was of a different race or a different gender or, you know, was just different, you know, than them because they were a white presenting Anglo-Saxon Protestant, you know, person. Fortunately, the fates worked out that they eventually got back to my table and they've been there for four and a half years and it's great. But I made an intentional choice to try to get people into this game who I know had either never done this game before or would not feel as comfortable getting to this game as anybody else. And while a lot of people can say that's sort of, I don't know what, prejudice, racist, I don't know what you want to throw at me. My point is, I think that's putting action to my belief, right? I want to make a welcoming game. So given the option to take somebody who I think is going to have no problem getting a table or getting a part of a, a game or somebody who's probably doesn't feel as welcomed in because everything is a lot of white dudes and it's a lot of, you know, Western European sort of presenting high fantasy stuff that doesn't look like what they grew up with or using phrases that they don't use. I'm going to take the extra effort to try to bring that other person in. And that's my biasy, I guess, my, my issue. I don't know that that's necessarily a bias. Um, personally, I, I find zero of what you're describing as objectionable. Um, I think specifically going out of your way to create a diverse and inclusive table is is if not a moral imperative is a social imperative because it continues to build on the story itself so like even if somebody isn't willing to look at it as a good thing from an objective moral ethical standpoint hey different viewpoints create better stories so as a gm facilitating that means you're serving not only yourself, but also all of the other players by creating a more diverse table as well. So I, I think it's a great, I think it's a great way to, to behave. And, you know, that's one approach that, you know, you, the listener can take if that's something you feel is kind of lacking at your table. I mean, one of my points was going to talk about, it's the imperative of the GM to make sure that the group is having a diverse experience, whether, and my obviously adding on to that quote was, in regards to experience with, you know, systems or in regards to the racial or gender or identity makeup at the table. And I feel that that's, that part to me is a hundred percent true because you are, are by the GM, you know, yes, there's nobody 
more important at the table than anybody else. There's a bit of equality there. True. However, as the GM, you're the director, you're the instigator, you're the, you know, paragon or the the beacon of what sort of system you're running, what sort of attitude you guys want to have, what sort of game you're presenting. So it's on you to look around at the table and be like, does this feel a lot of samey? Does this feel like, like anybody's picking up or learning something or having a new experience or new stories being told? And if not, then it's on, it's on you to tell a new story. Maybe stop assuming your character has alabaster or white skin when you describe them and only pointing out when they have different skin, when they happen to be browner than that or, you know, greener than that or purpler than that. Start, you know, changing the way you start using your pronouns maybe. So just don't assume every guy is a dude or because you did a lower voice. No, no, no. You can be a lower voice and be a they or whatever, a female, whatever you want. Uh, just things like that. Yeah, I I agree. I I think I, not not to continue preaching to the choir. I just think having a variety of perspectives and a variety of stories intersecting creates a better experience for both the player and the GM. Just universal. Hmm. That's true. And, and, and we won't, we won't, like, like, like I said, just kind of beat a dead horse here. I think we both agree as to what, what this is about. So I'll, I'll move on to something that's a little, little more, um, contentious here for me, at least, is, uh, if there is a problem at the table with ruling or with something that one, a uh, player wants to accomplish, it's up to the GM to create the solution slash homebrew it. Um, hmm. That is, so I, I actually, hello, Bragi. Could you maybe take your squeaky toy elsewhere? Thank you. That's the best. <laughs> um, he, oh my God. I love my dog, but he has decided that he needed to sit directly behind me with a squeaky toy. Maybe he had an um, opinion about homebrews and he goes, let me tell you guys all about it. <laughs> he did. He's just like, look, I've seen you run enough games. I have opinions. Um, for me, it's it's kind of hard to answer this question because I my players are my clients and there's a little bit of a push and pull where I'm not only providing a service and an experience for them. I also am the only point of customer service there is. So if they have a problem with something, it's really important for me to understand what their problem with it is. And if it's a small mechanical thing or like if I find we're going back and forth on like a rule or an interpretation, I will admit a lot of times I'll just skew in their favor because the happier they are, the longer I have that source of income. Um, now, do I think that's the right way to do it? I truly don't know. Um, I, I wish I had a stronger opinion on this on like a personal level, but I truly just, I think if you cannot find a solution in the rules, then homebrewing it is the only way forward. If there is an interpretation of the rules that the player is really, really hung up on, maybe just give it to them. Um, I, un unless they're being really toxic about it, but for me, it's tough because, because again, I, I'm not only playing the game to have fun myself, I'm also providing a service. So 
I think I got to leave that one up to the individual tables to decide how they handle it. Because I, I don't know that I can advise anyone one way or the other. I, th- I think that's actually a really good thing. And you, we're going to merge that into another topic too, because you hit on one of my other uh, statements. But to, to the homebrew thing, I think as the GM, when we're looking at already like established systems, whether it's anything published by, you know, Wizards or you know, White Wolf or wh- whoever it is, you know, Open Legend or whatever it is, um, you want to, I think you want to naturally fall back onto the system because you would assume like, all right, as a good designer, you kind of see these things coming and you have, you know, fail, fail safes in case like uh, there's a problem like, you know, with, with card games, and, and this is a small tangent, but uh, one of my favorite uh, card games is a game called Smash Up. And what I love about them is they execute this sort of th- rule to where, you know, if there's a bunch of effects from this card as opposed to that card, which will trigger this card and that card, is they just straight up say, the one that says you can't wins. So if one says you can and the other says you can't wins. And that sort of statement then lets you apply that to the rest of the game. And and I love it when RPG systems give you the kind of blanket statement about like, if confused, here's the general idea you should run with. So when a problem like that comes up in a game, you know, I can fall back on like, well, if you want this thing, generally this statement says it can't happen, or I can wiggle around to match the statement. I've known people who've uh, literally stopped playing games. Um, they wanted to get into a game, uh, a mutual friends uh, RPG game, which eventually ended up being streamed. But they were like, oh, I want to play a horse. And they're like, oh, you know, like, like you want to transform into a horse and be a druid? They're like, no, 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 I, I want to play a full horse. And you guys have to deal with that. Like, you know, I, I do not have, you know, posable thumbs, all that. I just want to be a horse. And that was a point of contention because uh, it happened to be uh, a system that didn't allow you to be a horse, a flat-up horse. It doesn't really match with any of their classes or any of their abilities. And the GM was just like, that's just too far. I'm sorry, I can't do that. And the player doesn't end up playing that game. And I think to myself, like, naturally, as, as a GM who wants people to be happy, who wants them to enjoy themselves, like, well, damn, you know, you potentially missed out on a great opportunity with that person. You potentially missed out on a really interesting story to tell or really just kind of quirky thing to have at the table where everybody tries to go like, all right, we got to run up the ladder. Oh, shit. How are we going to get the horse up the ladder? Damn it. Like, you know, but at the same at the same time, I get it from a GM's perspective about like, I have to do so much legwork. I have to, you know, flip this book upside down or change the way I do all of my you know encounters to compensate or to have a way for you to do this that, you know, it's just too much for me. So I, I, I kind of get it from both points there. Um, it, homebrewing is not easy. Uh, I will say this uh, to be devil's advocate. Um, ultimately, you are the ruler of that world. You are the decider of all things. So if your homebrew like that you come up with starts to not make sense or feel bad and you want to turn around and be like, yeah, I I messed up. Just be honest and say it. Uh, You have the right to do that. I've heard many horror stories about somebody getting an overpowered weapon or uh, creating a a mechanic, which then became overpowered. And I always think to myself, like, you know, you're the GM, right? So you can just be like, no, I'm sorry. You know, that's obviously overpowered. We need to reel that in. Or obviously that doesn't work the way I want to do. Sorry. Let's rewrite that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think if people take anything else away from this episode, I mean, it should sort of be that it's okay to admit that something didn't work. It's okay to grow and change. It's okay to learn new things and adjust them over time. Um, you know, if I, I 
point point in uh, or case in point, I should say. Um, case in point, I, I have one player right now uh, who is we're sort of feeling our way through incorporating psionics into a bard in 5e and you know they're sort of learning it a little bit at a time so every single time this individual does something it has to be a little bit different and if we weren't both willing to be flexible on what those results were or like consider them and say okay maybe this isn't how it happened um i don't think either of us would be having as much fun with it as we are um i think a lot of that comes down to the importance of a session zero you know understanding are you going to be playing rules as written? Are you going to be playing 100% homebrew? Or are you going to be playing a combination of the two? Making sure that both the GM and the players have an understanding between that. And then just feeling it out from there. You know, I, eventually you'll settle into a good rhythm. Either there's a good chemistry in the story or there's not. Um, and I think if something isn't working, like if as a GM you're not feeling that chemistry there... Um, be willing to examine what you're doing and see if there's something you can change before asking your players to change. Um, that I think is really going to be the mark of a modern GM. And a lot of things we've said tie back to this statement, which I have on my sheet here, which is a modern GM prioritizes the player's happiness. And I think you brought that up in an interesting case about the fact that you're providing a service in some of your games to where kind of prioritizing is imperative to you continuing to be compensated. So mm -hmm. maybe if we take that kind of uh, kind of more difficult situation out and we're just saying you're running a casual game for some friends or you know at a table or online for yourself, is that true? Do you prioritize the player's happiness over your own? I do, but I am also a diehard people pleaser. Um, I know that's just part of my personality. I like to entertain people. I like to amuse people. I like to give them experiences. That's just who I am as a person. Um, I, I think at home, it needs to be a little bit more balanced. Um, I think the way that I run my tables is... I mean, I know it's exhausting um, to put as much time and as much energy into them as I do, um, but I can kind of justify it because it is my job. Um, if I were not being compensated, uh, the amount of time and effort and emotional energy I put into some of these stories and some of these resolutions and mechanics, I, I don't think my partner or my friends would be amiss in advising me not to do it. Um, there needs to be a little bit coming back to the GM from the table. Um, if that's just players being willing to put in a little bit more effort on RP, you know, if that's a direction the GM is trying to take things, if you can try to give that to them um, because it is not easy to run some of these games especially for prolonged amounts of time. Um, I think it's really important for the GM and the players to both be having fun um, in order for it to be as rewarding an experience as possible. And, and, you know, I'm not as much of a people pleaser as you are, Michael, but I've still kind of found myself in a similar sort of vein to where I think by choosing to be a game master, you're literally choosing service. 
So because you're literally choosing service, that means you're going to have to be selfless. You're going to have to look out for others before yourself. Now, obviously, you don't want this to feel like some sort of slog or some sort of penance you're paying so you can have the pleasure of coming to the table. But at the same time, like you are deciding to want to have X number of people come at your table and you think you have the story or the uh, game acumen to entertain them for two to three hours or how long you play. And they are going to keep coming to your table, giving up their, you know, two to three hours out of their schedule, out of their time. Like for me, one of the biggest things, and, and I always say every session, no matter what I DM at the very end, I always thank my players because to me, it's such an important, um, important message that they send by giving me that day every week or every two weeks or one month or whenever, whenever we play for that game to give up to all the other things they could do, video games, wife, kids, you know, dog, cat, all the other things that they have going on in their lives to come to me and they anticipate me to give them something back. So the fact that there's more of that, more of them than me, it, it, it means I have to be self, self, selfless English. There we go. Selfless. I have to be looking out for them. So I do prioritize their happiness. And there has been times to where I've been like, you know what? I can tell they're having a great time. And maybe this was my favorite session. Maybe there's some stuff going on in my head or maybe there's some stuff I didn't like too much, but they had a great session. So they had a good session. I, I, I had a good session. Yeah, I I think I think that's the goal. As long as everybody is walking away happy, that's the ideal. Um, I I will say, you know, I I do want to I do want to clarify. I don't have any tables at, at which like I'm doing any because I I know some of my clients are going to listen to this. I am not playing in any games. I am not running any games that I am not having fun with right now. I I love the groups I play with. I think the stories we're telling are really compelling. I love the characters, and I, I really enjoy where we're going together as a group. But should the situation arise in which I had to make the decision between my happiness as a GM or my player's happiness in that moment, I'm probably picking the players just because it's better for me overall from a professional standpoint. And that's just kind of the way I'm wired. Um, but I, I love what I do and, and all my tables are great. And I, I wouldn't replace any of them. They're, they're all really lovely. The next kind of statement I have here, and uh, this one feels like it's, it's, it's calling to me, hitting me directly, um, is that the modern GM should create a, original, I have air quotes on original experience. Um, I mean, no, I mean, that, that, that would fly in the face of like, there are tons of players and GMs out there who really enjoy just playing pre-written modules. Like there's, there's going to be some variation, like obviously, you know, successes and failures and you're going to lead to. Oh, let, me, let, a... me, let me, let me, let me refine this down. Cause, cause I, cause I guess okay. you, didn't, you didn't get the uh, in jokes there for me. It's um, okay. I, I pull a lot of references and ideas and concepts from all sorts of books I've read and games I played and things like that. So when my players say like, Oh, stark white trunk trees with red leaves, 
I think I've also read the Lord of the Rings or uh, a song of ice and fire. And I kind of give him that look of like, yep, yep. That's probably where that came from. Or teenage mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, you mean Ninja Turtles? Oh, gotcha. Okay, cool. Like, you know, that's the type of type of stuff I like to do. And when, when you pick up on that, I find, I find, uh, there's, the, the, there's a fear that they lose a bit of, um, confidence in you. Cause you're like, Oh, I've been here. I've done that. Oh, I've, 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 Oh, I know what this is going to be like. Cause I've played games or I've watched TV and movies and stuff like that. That's not super original. That's not really out there and weird. Right. Oh, okay. All right. So that, that does help clarify. Thank sure. you. Sure. That's, um, that's my fault in writing it. I jot these down throughout the day cause I'm like, <laughs> and then I realized you're not part of my campaigns. My guys will immediately hear that and they go, yeah, he steals everything. But that, that's just me. <laughs> um i again i don't i don't think there's any way you can be a gm in any system if you don't consume other media and digest it and make it a part of your storytelling um now like there's there's overt references and and i think those can be a lot of fun as like easter eggs you know to you know one of my tables, there's an NPC who's essentially Denny from, or, or uh, Pastor Denny from Letterkenny. Um, and that table really, really loves that NPC because they recognize where the inspiration for him comes from. Um, but I have a lot of other characters that are inspired or, or taken from other mediums. You know, there's there's only so many tropes. There's only so many you know, hero molds that you can even pull people from, you know. It, and I guess it comes back to the question of, like, does every story follow the hero's journey? Um, or is that the perfect story to tell? Um, I think as long as you're not... As long as you're transparent about where you get your inspiration, if you're using it consciously because i think we all get inspired by things and like totally forget about it from time to time i i once had a gm who accidentally um ran us through the entirety of the movie face off without realizing that that was where they had gotten the story idea from and we were like dude this is just face off and he was just like no what are you i what uh and like he had just completely spaced on like that's what he had put together um but I, I, I think as long as you're not trying to pass something off as your own or like profit in some way uh, from that sort of uh, IP theft, um, use use every inspiration under the sun. I mean, hell, one of the, the, the very, very best episodes of uh, of the Mandalorian was, you know, there were huge sections of it that were just shot for shot replications of Yojimbo by Kurosawa, you know, like they, there's, there's always going to be sequences like that, you know, or in, in Red Dead Redemption, you know, there's a, there's a big train heist sequence that basically shot for shot recreates the murder of Jesse James. There are moments that you can create that are already executed so beautifully that the only way you can create that same sort of atmosphere is by revisiting what somebody else has already done. And I think if you do it well, it can be just as powerful as an original moment because people already have emotions tied up into it. And I'm 100% in the camp that you, you – I think you overestimate how badly people just want a power fantasy. 
Sorry, you underestimate how badly people just want a power fantasy. All <laughs> I the probably time, do, all the honestly. Time, yeah, I was going to say, all the time, I find my characters, when they come up with a, a, an idea or they come up with one of these scenarios to where it might bend the rules or stuff like that, then, then they'll be like, yeah, I want to pull an Indiana Jones. Yeah, I want to pull a you know Geralt from The Witcher. Yeah, I want to pull... All of these characters, all of these scenarios are ultimately for fun. So when you... Just admit it. When I think we come out at the table and we would go like, "Oh, you guys want to have like a Helm's Deep moment where you like defend this place against onslaught of orcs?" Cool. Yeah, I'll hundred percent lean into that, and I'll say there's a a neighboring army that shows up at the last second to join you guys on the walls, and then you know it starts going well until well, what's that? One of the unsecured um you know walls goes down, and now they're all spilling into the courtyard. Like again, a thousand percent IP theft. Tokyo Estate, sue me. I get it. But also, you want that too. If you tell me, and we all admit, like, hey, I want, I want to, you know, I had a great game and a really bad system. And then no disrespect, but OVA is not a great system. But I was playing a, you know, a teenage, you know, Japanese high schoolers in a kind of anachronistic 1980s Japan game. And then halfway through, like, we were kind of, I was watching what was happening. And then I started, started to notice they're only picking one color clothes. I'm like, oh, 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 you guys want to be Power Rangers. Oh, that's what you want to play? Cool. We can make this a Power Rangers game. No problem. Let's do that. So I just made them <laughs> the super Kami warriors, right? And, the, and then they each had powers from a different animal, you know, a, a flying squirrel, a wolf, you know, all that. Because I was like, oh, is that what you wanted? No problem. I get it. Let's just run right face into it. Let's call it as it is. Mm-hmm. There's there's a really amazing system, and and I I don't recommend systems unless I've played them myself and I genuinely think they're good. There's a really really amazing system that just came out called Arium, A R I U M, and the session zero for that system is a world building session, um, where you go through like some really cool exercises that help you dial into like what is the world we want to play in, like. If we put this in the Wild West, how legit do we want to play this? And it like presents you with a lot of these questions so that you can dial into that without having to adjust on the fly. Like you can actually go in and prepare the world in advance. Um, I have found it to be an incredibly powerful system for GMs and players uh, to like really dial into exactly the kind of world they want to be playing inside. And it's also really good because it seamlessly ties into a lot of those safety tools that are out there right now uh, for content um, and uh, and rules. Uh, so I, I would really recommend that to folks who want to explore, like maybe playing some of the tropey plug and play, you know, I'm going to be a Power Ranger or a Ninja Turtle or Geralt, you know, it's a system that lends itself to being that in a very seamless way. That's actually really great. And I'll bring all you guys the link in the description of this podcast if you guys want to check it out. Um, On to another one of our statements here, but this one actually you segue perfectly into, thank you, Michael, is um, a modern GM should have already prepared rules, expectations, and guidelines in a session zero. So I think this one is one I actually can't find much fault with because we are now in an age to where we have so many great resources that before you get to the table, I think you should be able to know what the players can expect, what they want from their game, what they're comfortable, uncomfortable with. And then especially once you get to that session zero where you really hash out 
where you guys want to go with the story, what you guys want to do, what each one of your characters wants to be. Because uh, unless you're running, you know, these, you know, sometimes conventions will have these like newbie games where somebody will come on and they have no idea what, it, what it's about, where you're 100% in, in the blue, you have no, no, no idea about the person. You should have some prep. You should have some introduction to your world and your expectations and the way you run your table as a GM. So then the players know like, oh, that's the game for me. Or I think I want to talk about these things before I start playing with you. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, I actually use uh, an onboarding email. Um, I, I did take sort of the uh, <laughs> the talent recruiting tools that I learned in in the tech se- in the tech sector and like cloud recruiting for developers. Um, I have an onboarding email where I basically spell out to them, you know, hey, thanks for expressing interest. Uh, just so you know, this is the world we're going to be playing in. This is the system we're going to be playing in. Uh, it's going to be rules as written or homebrew. Um, you know, before we start, I need you to walk me through sort of what you're feeling your character might be so we can make sure that there's nothing objectionable um, or that there's something we can work with. Um, and then I also include in there, like, here's a digital consent checklist. It is hard anonymous. You have to complete it to play at my table. Um, you know, just so I all know we're operating from the same place. Here's the safety tools we use. Here's how to reach me during a game. If you need to execute any of these safety tools and you need to do it anonymously, here's my payment info. Like all of that is presented as an onboarding package before we even sit down for session zero, because I want them to understand what the expectations are going in from our relationship and that they also understand that part of my job is ensuring that everyone is comfortable, not just me and them. That's actually really, really in depth, and I love that. That's it, I, I do only a fraction of that. I do have um, surveys that I've taken from. I think it was Jennifer Kretschmer. I, I think was uh, the person who I grabbed her surveys from. From what we're going to anticipate at the table. How much do you want to role play? How much do you want to do combat? What sort of you know? Do you like you know loot? Do you like money? How do you feel about these topics? Things like that. She uh, she tweeted it or tweeted it from somebody else. So I apologize if I don't have the uh, uh, true source in mind. But I, I have her resources. My big thing in the before times was I would actually sit uh, somebody down, regardless of whether they're you know actually going to go into the game or they're just thinking about it. So I'd sit them down and we usually do a lunch. I'd bring my dice with me. And we do part like, you know, role playing, but more importantly, before like the kind of role playing, uh, I wanted to talk to them and be like, hey, I take this very seriously. And, and this is like, I, I think I've scared some people away because I was a little too intense, which because I think they felt like it was a job interview. But I, I'm glad you do a similar thing, Michael, because I don't feel so weird is like but I told him like, no, I take this very seriously. I'm going to devote, you know, hours on hours of prep. These other people are going to devote their time away from their wife and kids and whatever whatever else is going on. So, like, don't come into this game not prepared to commit, not prepared to be, you know, kind and considerate and conscientious and a decent person of the people around you. I, I want you to have a great time, but they also need to have a great time because if we all don't have a great time, I will stop this game. Like, this will end. No problem. Um, so this is, like, who I am. This is, you know, what I'm going to do. This is what I expect you guys to do. 
And then from there, then I'll be like, all right, all right, cool. Things you want to bring up, right? Let's do a quick little role play, just you and I right now, so you can get my style. Because I'm very wordy. I'm sure you guys have noticed on this podcast, I'm very wordy. I love descriptive things. If if you can say a thousand words to to convey something that should have been 15, I always take a thousand. So that's me. So, you know, once they get that idea, if, if they still want to play, they usually on board. But I, I'm similar to you in that regard. I make my intention very, very clear. And I think you should make your intention very, very clear. And not just at RPGs, I think in life as well. Consent is very important to me. There's, I mean, we can go into another conversation for another time, but like, there's no excuse not to have the intentions known and the uh, idea idea of what you're about to get into ahead of time. Yeah, uh, I mean, I I think there is something to be said about random games and one shots at events. Um, you know, in person events or now some of the virtual conferences that are happening where you can't account for everything, but even those tables, you should be able to provide your players with some sort of outline of expectations. Like, does your table include things like sexual assault or slavery um, or child labor or things like that? Um, If it does include those things, ask yourself why. Does it actually contribute to the story? If not, do they need to be there? Um, But I think there needs to be some sort of expectation between the GM and the players that they are speaking the same storytelling language and the content and the rules tend to be the two biggest sticking points for me. You know, when I, when I interview with clients, I have, I have turned some clients away because the game that they want is not a game that a, I feel comfortable playing. Um, but also that I just don't think I would be entertaining even if I was coming because I just wasn't as familiar, like Westmarch style campaigns. I am not your GM if you want a Westmarch style hard fantasy survivalist tabletop gaming experience. I'm not your guy. If you want a weird mashup of like 80s movie tropes, 90s cartoons and like pop punk from the 2000s, like all blended in with The Hobbit and The Witcher. Hey, you're going to love my table, but that might not be for you. So I think understanding that means that everybody gets to have a better time. I mean, yeah, I can't say that any <laughs> any better than, than than you kind of put it on. Um, well, we're coming close to the end, end of our time here, Mike. Um, if there's any um, any last kind of words you want to say about what the modern GM and thing is, um, I'll let you kind of go first, and I'll say my last bit here. Yeah, absolutely. I I think there's. The drive to define the modern GM, I think, can be a little bit dangerous because I don't want anyone to listen to this and feel excluded or feel like they're not ready in some way to run a game or be a part of a game um, as a as a game master, as a storyteller. Um, I think the most important thing for anybody to take away is that the modern GM is just a GM who plays today. Um, or plays now. Uh, I think there is a lot of flexibility in tools. There's a lot of flexibility in systems. Maybe D&D isn't the right system for you. Maybe you should explore things like Wander Home, you know, things with different resolution mechanics. Maybe you should explore tarot-based resolution games. Maybe you should even try, like, a GM-less game. Um, 
because I think everybody looks at D&D as the be-all and end-all of tabletop systems. And I think there's a lot of GMs who come in and they read that and they go, I don't think I can do this, but there might be something else they can do. So I think the modern GM is just one who finds a method of storytelling that they're comfortable with and matches up with some players that speak the same storytelling language. And right now, digitally, there are so many tools to help make that happen. And if you are having trouble finding a group, reach out to me. I will help pair you with a group because I have tons of people in tons of different systems that are just looking for groups or GMs that speak their storytelling language. Um, I think that's that's what makes a modern GM is just finding the right people and speaking a language that they're comfortable in. Yeah, and I don't want, and I mean, if you've gotten to the end of this episode and, and you feel this way, I apologize, but I don't want you to think that I'm somehow judging you or telling you that there's a right or wrong. As Michael makes a good point, a lot of this comes down to the table, a lot of this comes down to who you are and what you want to do. Um, mm-hmm. The intent of this thing is to drive conversation, and obviously there's a little bit of my, and I apologize because it's, I guess maybe it's the modern approach to content creation. You do a large general sort of topic, which click baits or ear baits i guess in this case right clickbait ear bait i don't know uh, yeah but but um podcast bait yeah podcast bait there we go that's the word i'm looking for um that podcast baits you in and then the conversation is what you stay for so um my only thing i will i, I will try to siphon kind of my definition of the modern gm i think you kind of hit it towards the end is the modern gm is active the modern gm is just active in whatever it is, whether making their table more inclusive or more entertained or making their uh, jamming skills more refined. or I think the modern GM is, uh, is a person who just, they don't settle on what was before. Even if their approach is old school, they still try to come up with something that makes the game better or the more inclusive or whatever it is you're trying to do. Because I think the modern GM is in a good space right now because the TTRT RPG space is still in some amazing renaissance. And I know as soon as things get better, the um, the wave of people coming back to the table. And I mean, one of the things, the topics I wanted to talk about, but you know, we didn't have enough time, maybe a second episode we'll see is um, we make friends. I think it's almost impossible not to like eventually the people who you game with because you spend so much time together and you choose to share that time together. So, because of that, like the modern GM is also somebody who makes friendships and makes people happy and then creates memories. I think that that's the that's what I'll end on. I think that's the true definition of the modern GM. It's nothing mechanical. It's just somebody who wants to make people happy and make memories and have a good time. I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. Well, Mike, if people are going to reach out to you, I mean, you've you're a great well of resources already, and you a fantastic amount of stuff. What's the best method? Uh, absolutely the best method to reach me is via Twitter, uh, where you can find me at yes, that M Gibson, like, yes, that Michael Gibson over there. Uh, or you could just search my name, Michael J Gibson. You'll generally find me through that as well. Um, uh, on Twitter, uh, if you don't want to search the handle, um, but that, uh, I, I basically live on social media these days just cause I'm not going anywhere else. Absolutely. And obviously, if you want to reach me, the MyRPG Podcast is on all the podcast services. The email is myrpgpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions, concerns, or want to come on. Uh, my personal Twitter is classy underscore Don. That's D-O-N. Otherwise, thank you for listening, and I'll see you 
at the table.